Leslie Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell stories of people performing random acts of kindness. We often have that segment here on our show, and very often it's produced and wrapped up and narrated. But we felt like this story needed more personal attention. Not that the others aren't personal, but this one, we just wanted to talk to the parties and have you hear this story yourselves from them and Diazerome suffers from cerebral palsy, a movement condition that makes it very hard for her to walk on her own. So six fraternity brothers from the University of Central Arkansas decided to be her legs for a day. They carried her up a thousand-foot mountain. They each took turns giving her piggyback rides until they got to the top. Diage is here with us today to talk about this experience, and also one of the brothers, one of those fraternity brothers, Benji Richards, thank you both for joining us. You're welcome. You're so welcome, man. You bet. And Diaja, let's start with you. Um, You obviously wanted to see the top of this mountain. You wanted to get to the top. Why did you want to do that and talk about what what it felt like to get this offer from these from these fraternity boys? You know, I just seen all the pictures. You know, the people locally around um, Arkansas and Conway. <laughs> I've just seen all the pictures on Instagram, you know, Facebook, everybody, the joys of getting to the top, you know. That was something I wanted to do. Um, and I was just like, yeah, I'm going to do this. Like, nothing's going to stop me from, um, from doing this and something that I want to do just because I have a disability doesn't mean that I can't do something that everybody else does. And just to get the opportunity from these guys to climb this mountain, I was overjoyed. I was like, yeah, man, let's do it. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, man, let's do it. Did you know these uh, fraternity brothers? Yes. Um, Actually, um, my... um, I met them through, like, a wiffle ball tournament that we had. Um, it was pretty cool. Um, in the middle, like, um, I'm in the middle team with them, and we just played softball. And uh, that was how we met. And, I, of course, I had seen them around campus and things like that. So I was just like, yeah, man, I already know these guys, and I've developed some trust, so why not? Let's do it. Yeah, you got to have some trust in somebody who's carrying you up a mountain, Diaja. And uh, Benji, Benji, talk about uh, how you ca- had come to know Diaja, uh, and talk a bit about uh, your fraternity as well and the brothers and how this idea came to fruition. Um, well, we, like Diaja said, we met her through um, with, uh, some intramurals, uh, a co-rec wiffle ball tournament we had on our campus, um, and so our fraternity was teamed up with her sorority, and... Um, we uh, and Diaja was actually on our team, and so she pulled up in her wheelchair and was even batting uh, on the team. So that that's how we actually met her, and so we we're all kind of impressed. We're like, okay, you know, like she's not going to let anything stop her. Um, now, how the idea came about is we had actually seen a chapter for a different fraternity do this up in the Northeast. Um, there was a post that had been shared where they had a brother that also had um, cerebral palsy, and they carried him. And I can't remember if the idea started with myself or um, Cesar Ramirez, but one of us was just like, hey, what if we did this? And then uh, I remember pushing the idea to um, some of the members that I knew, 
in her sorority, and eventually just they got the baby D, and she was like, yeah, let's do it. So we set up a time to go. And we love doing these segments because, well, the media loves to cast millennials in a certain light, young people in a certain light, and I live in a college town, and I've never been more impressed by a generation and I hate seeing older people looking at younger people and saying, ah, back when we were better kids, life was better, and you all stink. I mean, that's just what older people always do to younger people. But I've witnessed quite the opposite. And the same with fraternities, who especially after that terrible UVA story at the Rolling Stone, sort of cast all fraternities as just, well, something they're not. And talk a little bit about uh, Diaja, the, your experience with this fraternity and these brothers, because my goodness, what a story. And how did, how did it make you feel? And then how did you set about going to do this, Diaja? Um, it made me feel awesome. You know, just that um, a group of guys, you know, just wanted to do this for me out of, out of the compassion of their hearts. You know, it's, um, I was, I posted on Facebook yesterday. I was like, it's the smallest things in life um, that make individuals happy and bring about the greatest amounts of happiness <laughs> so just for these guys to like you know spend some time out of their day to actually you know help this little this little goal of mine this little dream of mine to come true and you know um, give away some um some sweat and some muscle <laughs> to do this for me it was just awesome i can't Words can't even describe. When I got to the top, I was like, "Wow!" And Benji, it's a whole nother, it's a whole nother ball game up there. It is, and you know, you said something so wonderful, and that is, in the end, it's something we try and talk about regularly on this show. If you want to really go after social justice in this country, do something really radical. Help a total stranger. Do something wonderful and beautiful for another person. And if we all did that every day, we would have social justice coming at us so darn fast. So darn fast in every way, shape, and form. Benji, talk about how hard it was, or not hard it was, to enlist a bunch of guys to do this. Give me just a short answer here. We're going to come back on the other side of the break and then talk about the actual walk. Um, honestly, it was really simple. I just mentioned to a few of the guys, and they said, let's do it. Uh, there wasn't really any challenge to it. Um, so I was like, hey, we're going to carry the uh, Aja up this mountain. And they're like, all right, let's go. Just tell me in time. Well, hold that thought. And by the way, that's why I knew it would be a short answer, because that's the American spirit, frankly. There's no committees. There's no Grand Cuba calling the shots. A couple of guys go, hey, let's help this beautiful young lady. Let's let her live her dream. And you just went and did it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the story of a fraternity brother and a sorority sister, and these brothers and sisters coming together to achieve a dream. Well, actually, a whole bunch of dreams, actually. Because when we live other people's dreams, through them and with them, we live our own. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We're talking to Benji Richards, 
and Diaja Romes. And this is a story from the University of Central Arkansas. A young lady with cerebral palsy wanted to climb a mountaintop. And some fraternity brothers said, what the heck, let's do this. And so they did it. And Benji, I want to go to you. First of all, what's the name of your fraternity? Give a shout out to the fraternity. I know that matters a lot to y'all. And then what did you what did you do? Talk about what steps you took and then talk about this climb. Um, well, I'm a part of Phi Gamma Delta, or uh, Fiji, um, as we're commonly known as, um, at University of Central Arkansas. And um, in terms of the steps that we took to make it happen, um, really, we, we set a time and a date to go and meet there, and like I collected a few of the guys. Um, the only really outside planning we did was we spent a lot of time discussing how we were going to carry Diaja. Um there was, that was an interesting discussion. We went through different things about trying to figure out how to like bring her to our back and finally ended up settling on just, we'll just piggyback ride her the entire way up. So, or give her a piggyback ride the entire way up. And so what did you do? Switch, switch up, just go from guy to guy. How did you do it? Um, yeah, so we would just, uh, I think I took the first leg and you just start going right up the mountain. Um, and then, Honestly, a lot of us were football players, so this kind of was similar to us as if we were just doing, we were back in uh, the football team just working out doing lunges, but after a while we would, you know, kind of wear out and need a break. We would find a, like a tall standing rock that we could set her on where we wouldn't have to squat down and set her on the ground, and then we would just kind of trade her around like that. And so you, you had how many fellas with you on this walk? I want to say about six. About six. And again, all members of Fiji as well, correct? Yeah. Great. And Diaja, so you, you, get the, you get the call from these guys, and then you realize you're going to be piggybacked up a mountain. Were you a little worried at first? Um, honestly, um, just the type of person I am, I was like, nah, man, um, I'm not worried at all. Of course, there were a couple times where I was like, Oh crap! I might like we might go down, but we're going down together. Yep, so, you're going down together. <laughs> That's some cool. of the rocks were, were slippery, but I was like, no man, we're a team. We got this. If if one goes down, we all go down. And and let's talk about as you're going up that mountain and you're getting up to the top. Uh, talk about that moment when you get to the top of the mountain, Diasha. Uh, we were about a couple feet away from the top, and I was. I was getting anxious. I was like, man, is it really like the pictures? Like, is everybody just hyping this up for no reason? But um, when we got to the top, you know, it was, it was pretty hot because we, we um, started coming up in the middle of the day but, um, and all sweating and stuff. But I was like, wow, the sky is like limitless up here. I feel like I can literally do anything from the top of this mountain. I could scream at the top of my lungs and, like, nobody, like, the sky was listening, you know? It's kind of like when land meets the sky, you didn't you didn't really know where the um, the line was drawn. That's beautiful. So awesome. That's beautiful. You have, and if you could, we'd love to have you send a, a, I'm sure you took some pictures. Send them to our team here, and we'll post them up on the website. Uh, because we can't wait to see them. And so, Benji, you, you, you get up to the top of the mountain. You've never climbed a mountain with a person on your back before. How did it make you feel? Because, I, I, you know, we have the deep feeling on this show that when you do well for others, 
uh, it, it makes you feel better than doing for yourself. Yeah, uh, it was definitely um, pretty exhilarating. Uh, it was really rewarding um, to get her all the way up there. She was really excited. We were a little tired, um, honestly. But, uh, you know, getting up there, you kind of, we hit our second win. We got that, sec- uh, that rush of energy because um, Daza was so um, excited to be up there and, you know, she, you, you're listening to her talk about what it was like and trying to describe it, and that you can imagine that her physical reaction of her just being like, oh, look at all this, it's so cool. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely a very rewarding experience being able to get her up there. Now, I heard you guys are planning to do this again. Yes, so we've, we've actually already taken her on two trips since. Um, we were trying to plan one this December, but uh, everyone's back home, so it made it a little difficult. Um, but we actually went to Petty Jean State Park, um, and that's a park here that has a, a waterfall. Um, and we actually got her in the waterfall because she said she wanted to be in it. So that was it involved um, two of us putting her in a chair and swimming her across a pool to get her to the waterfall. Um, and then we took her to Mount Magazine and we hiked her up to the highest or the tallest elevation um, in the state of Arkansas, also. Oh, so you got yourself a real hiking partner there, don't you? Yeah. And, and, and uh, Diaja, for all the folks who, who and we, we do this often here on the show, talk about folks with disabilities, because we, we, we think and deeply believe that all people are children of God and that, well, you know, there's nothing anyone can, can or can't do except what's in their own mind. Talk to all the folks listening to may have, who may have relatives who have cerebral palsy, or suffer from some other uh, 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 some other uh, calamity that occurred early in their life, but that they overcame. That they overcame. Talk about them, Talk to them directly about that, Diaja, if you could. Yeah, you guys. Uh, it can be hard sometimes, you know, um, having a disability and getting um, stereotyped. Oh, you can't do this, or you can't do that. Well, I'm living, breathing proof. Um, that they, the disabled are indeed able and can achieve, achieve great things if you just put your mind to it and, you know, grit and bear it and get down and actually do what you want to do, put those people wrong and, um, you know, just have fun. Um, you know, having a disability has its ups, has its downs, but at the end of the day, you just have to believe that you really want to do something and have the diligence to get it done and have fun, you know. It's all about the happiness in life and getting um, getting as much of it as you can out of life. I mean, because life is short. You can't really wait around um, for someone to do something for you. you got to get out and do it if you really want it. Um, just go for it, man. Yeah, we think here, and we often bump into what I call the bigotry of low expectations, and that is the second somebody has some kind of problem, we set the bar lower on those people, and that's the worst thing to do to folks. Um, And you have set the bar high on yourself, Diaja, and I'm so happy that you not only not see yourself as a victim, but that you are going to live a beautiful and valuable life. And Benji... Talk about what this has done for the fraternity uh, and what it's done for you personally. I, I'd, I'd love to get that, that angle of this story. Um, I definitely think for the fraternity it became a point of pride. Um, different guys have been 
involved in everything. Um, I know, for example, when we did the Pettyjean trip and a bunch of guys realized they couldn't get off work to make it, um, a lot of guys got uh, upset about it. Um, and so it's definitely become something that's like when we can get enough guys to actually plan a sufficient trip, um, they get excited about it. Um, so that's uh, been pretty great. What, and what was the second question? And for you, what did it do for you personally in terms of uh, doing this kind of, just performing this kind of just act of kindness? Um, well, for, for me personally, it was just uh, rewarding. Um, like I said, taking her up there and seeing her get really excited. But um, I think something else that happened um, was after the story went, uh, the story got some attention. Um, and after that happened, um, I uh, was actually receiving emails from uh, graduate brothers or alumni of our fraternity that have um, daughters or sons with cerebral palsy, and they were telling me how they appreciate this, how it means a lot. Um, I've actually met a graduate brother here in the Little Rock area um, that has a daughter with cerebral palsy, and he just talked about how um, it really means a lot, and it really sticks to what our fraternity is supposed to be when we do things like this. So um, to me, it's meant quite a bit. Well, what a great story, and thank you, Diaja, for coming on, and thank you, Benji, as well. It's our random act of kindness story of the week, and we do these every week, and this is as good as it gets. And for anybody who's listening and has an idea or a judgment about this generation, I promise you there are stories after stories. I know here at Ole Miss, I watch what the young people do in terms of charity drives, raising money for, for, for the poor, raising money for kids, teaching literacy. I'm humbled to see those, those young people do what they do. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And again, thank you, Benji. Thank you, Diaja, for joining us. You're welcome. You're welcome. You bet, and uh, Godspeed to both of you. And by the way, if you want to hear all that we do here on Our American Stories, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. American stories and we love to talk about leadership on this show and we talk to leaders from all walks of life or gather musings or speeches from leaders past present and some future leaders when we talk to young people and now we want to dig into a speech and some helpful advice on how to excel in the workplace from business executive Jack Welch He's retired now, but Welch was formerly chairman and CEO of General Electric for two decades and turned the company into a powerhouse. He's authored a handful of books, including Winning, co-authored by his wife Susie Welch and published in 2005. It focuses on management and how to win in the business world. Over a decade later, this book contains helpful principles for us now 
We'll learn more about how we can be successful in each of our particular workplaces from Jack himself. And so here, Jack talks about how jobs are not one size fits all. And in his book, Welch outlines five things to look for in a job for you. When you look for for a job, be sure you look for people that are like you. They laugh at the jokes you you laugh at. They think the way you think. They have the same sensibilities. If you're a nerd, go hang out with nerds. But don't end up confusing the issue. Never have to put on a persona to be in the job you pick. Uh, As far as uh, opportunities are concerned, always go to a company where there are smarter people around you than than you, where you can learn, where you can grow. Don't go to a place where you're going to be the smartest person in the place. It doesn't do much for, for you. Now, I'm all for, for, for startups and, and entrepreneurs, and that may be right there if you've got the idea and you've got the vision and you're going after it, and I applaud that totally. But if you're going to a company, that's worthwhile. Options are the third thing we talk about. If you're going to a company uh, and you're not sure exactly what's right, I would go to a company that has a brand. A brand counts. Uh, whether it's Microsoft, J&J, you, you, you pick the company. Wells Fargo, you pick the company. You pick a company that has a brand because if things aren't right for you in your first job, your brand will be very important as you look to the next job. And people in the chemical industry, we used to always want, want to hire people from DuPont. They probably weren't any smarter than anybody else, but we thought they were. And the same thing's true of Microsoft. People out here want, want to get a Microsoft person. Yeah, they probably have a pot full of duds, but nevertheless, it's it's a uh, it's a wonderful it's another one of those chits you have. But having options based on the brand is is important. Uh, the the fourth one is um, ownership. Own the company you're going to. Don't take a responsibility for the job job you take. Don't blame it on somebody else. My mother wanted me to always live here. Uh, I've got a spouse and I can't travel. If, you, if that's the case, make that deal going in knowing it. But don't then come home and kick the dog or punch the wall because that, that's what's happening. And finally, work content. Be sure the work turns your crank. Don't go to the job for an extra 10 bucks or 15 bucks or whatever the number is. Go to the job because the work turns your crank really turns you on, excites you every day. That's what you got to look for. Own the job, take work that excites you, and brand counts. So maybe attach yourself to one. And I love what he said about working with people who are smarter than you. That is just, that's so smart. And Welch, well, he went on to elaborate on this point. And here he tells an embarrassing story about his wife, Susie, and explains how important it is to be comfortable in your own work environment. But you, you wouldn't want to go to a place where you couldn't be yourself. I don't think you want to reflect, you don't want to mirror on any, any, everyone you, you look at looking like you. I think you do, though, want to be in a place. We, we tell a story in the, in the book, and I'll now confess it's Susie. Uh, we talk about this woman who went to look for a job, and she was looking at consulting firms at the time. She was uh, I think getting her MBA from the other school on the East Coast. And um, she showed up at this place, and she 
came to this one place and the three people were waiting on the top of the stairs and she walked in she fell and did a face plant like that and she said hi I'm Gracie the ballerina now the ballet teacher and the three of them looked at her like this you know what are you weird <laughs> at the end of the day they gave her an offer and another consulting firm gave her an offer she was much more comfortable going the place that she didn't look weird with a, front, with a line which I think is funny and she thought was funny. Hi, I'm Grace, the ballet teacher, as she did a face plan. And they were quite serious and stiff about the whole event and it didn't feel like a very good place to hang out. Both consulting firms were great, uh, top three, and uh, why not go with the place you wanted to be? I don't think it, be, it relates to, to, to a personal style as much as just sensibilities. If the sensibilities are the same, like you, if, if, if you're somebody that likes to have fun, relax a lot, work like hell, but have fun doing it, and you go with a bunch of pompous stiffs, that's never going to be any fun for you. And, and, and they can be all different shapes and colors. That isn't the issue. It's the sensibilities. So true. And by the way, that was her good luck that she fell in front of those folks and they displayed their character and their nature because they, they, didn't, they didn't go with it, roll with it, and accept her grace in making fun of herself. They were stiffs, and she didn't want to work with stiffs. And by the way, if you are a stiff, you want to work with stiffs. And if you like uptight, you'll love uptight. And by the way, I went to a law school where people went to every kind of firm. Some loved the power firm where you couldn't even whisper. It was so proper and so staid, and it was so white shoe. But that's what, that's what those people wanted. That's who they were. And it's not a slam on those people. It's just the right fit. Find the right fit. Great advice from Jack. And although you certainly want to find a work schedule that lets you have some balance in life, because now he's talking about work balance, Welch tells us a cautionary tale about being presumptuous. We, we, we tell this story in the book of this job where a friend, a friend of ours was running a small operation, 60 people, one of the women in the job had a second child. She had been in the company eight years. She was a real star. She came in and said, look, I, I want to work at home on Fridays and Mondays and come in the office for three days a week. Is that okay? And they said, absolutely. You, you're doing a great job. You're doing it fine. And they, they let her do it. Immediately, down the hall, Prances, this young man, six months out of uh, school. And he says, I'd like to get Friday off and Monday off. And uh, the boss said, why? He said, I want to practice, perfect my yoga practice. And the boss, she said, no, no way. And he said, you mean to say you're making a judgment and you're, and you're not qualified, I'll tell you that right now, to make a judgment between motherhood is more valuable than my yoga practice. You have no right to do that. And she said, I'm not making that judgment. I'm making the judgment that you haven't earned a thing in the six months you've been here, therefore you don't get the flexibility. You're barely doing your job now. <laughs> so that's the way it's always going to be. It's you deliver, you get flexibility. You don't, if every time your boss has a report or needs something, desperately wants to get it, and you say, I can't be there, things aren't going to go right for you. You've got to find the systems that allow you to over-deliver and then earn flexibility. So true and great advice. Great story, by the way. 
And it is presumptuous to be at some place six months and ask for your raise and ask for this or that. Just do the time. Create value first. Then start making some demands. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Jack Welch. Advice to young people. Leading always and teaching always. More with Jack Welch after these messages. This is Our American Stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. To listen to all that we do, that's OurAmericanNetwork.org. American stories, and we continue with Jack Welch's candid speech on the workplace, tips about how to get ahead and win, but more importantly, tips on how to lead. And we love talking about leadership here on Our American Stories. Before we came to this segment, we had Welch talking about flexibility and who earns it and who doesn't. And that gets to the topic of rewards and celebrating and rewarding employees. And here's Jack Welch talking about that subject. Here's one of the problems. If, if, if you ask managers tomorrow, if you, you all went around and did a survey of middle managers and top managers, you, and you asked the question, do you celebrate enough? You would be shocked at how everyone would say, no, not here, we never celebrate, you know, it never happens. Uh, one of the things you can do as managers when, when you go out is have small celebrations for every little victory on the way to reaching your vision. Uh, Excite people. Give them better jobs. Send them off to training. Do things for them that aren't particularly right on the button, monetary, but they're recognition. And you've got to do that as, but again, plaques don't substitute for checks. And so you've got to have a combination of checks and plaques. And uh, you can't, and you can't, in investment banking, it's mainly checks. But in most corporations, people try and get that balance right. And recognition, awards, patents, all that stuff can be big celebrations. And I think that's the job of the manager, to make to come up with that balance that feels right to your team, that turns them on. Yep, finding that balance between tangible rewards like a check and the intangible that for some people is just as important, if not more important, and that's that personal recognition. And that personal pat on the back, especially in front of your peers. Finding that balance is so important as a leader in order to build a team that functions and grows together. The day you become a leader, it becomes about them, right? If it becomes about them, your job is to walk around with a can of water in one hand and a can of fertilizer in the other hand. And think of your team as seeds and try and build a garden. Now you will end up with some weeds. And you're going to have to cut out some weeds. But that's your job. It's about building these people. You know, in my case, if, if, if they were dealing with me, they'd want to make me feel 6'4 with hair. And that's what you're going to want to try and do. You're going to try and do that with your team. 
And, and only you will know the team. Some people will be more motivated by this, some will be more motivated by this, but you'll be the, if you will, the orchestra conductor that will bring it all together. And I can't tell you what mix of what is the right answer. I know one thing, money counts. <laughs> you bet. In the end, you can pat people on the head all day long, but if you don't start giving them raises, you're going to have some problems or some bonuses. Welch encourages managers to reward good behavior. This helps make sure everyone is working hard. One of the things you, that you'll find in a company, somebody does a great job, and, and, and you say, let's give them something for doing that great job. You'll have this incredible experience. They'll say, the guy will say, I can't. I, I don't want to make the others feel bad. Well, if you can't identify what they did and justify the great thing they did by rewarding them, you shouldn't do it. But if you, if you can do it, you should do it and make it transparent as can be. It doesn't mean the others can't get something someday for something. But this idea of leveling everything, it's like the companies that give 100 or 500 stock options to everyone. It's the dumbest game in town. It's like having a dental plan. I mean, what do you gain if everybody gets it? There's, there's no evaluation. There's no differentiation. People, people know who's, who's carrying the freight, and they know who is not carrying the freight. In, in our company, for example, despite this system, after seven years, the top people thought we were tough enough on weak performers. 90-plus percent of the blind survey said we were. As we went down in the organization, there was a massive complaint that we weren't tough enough on weak performers. The people closest to the work know who's pulling the, the oars in the boat. And so they're mad as hell when somebody comes in two hours late and they have to cover for them and do this and that. So the idea of being rigorous is something that absolutely increases the morale of a company. It does not decrease the morale of a company. No one likes a company or a unit that carries along. Just think of the rowboat. Four on each side. Two aren't working on one side. What happens to the boat? Goes right around in circles. And everyone in the organization knows who's carrying the freight. Your job is to find out as much as they know. You bet. And that's, you know, this goes down right into the heart of our cultural problems from school on, and we're talking grade school, leveling everything out. No, you got to be able to distinguish. And it's not nice. It, it hurts some people's feelings. Good. Good, you got to say A work is A work and C work is C work. By the way, this is the problem with our whole education establishment. Every teacher gets paid the same. How do you attract talent to a universe with a great teacher and the crummy teacher get exactly the same? You're never going to accept. You're never going to really attract talent to a situation like that. Jack Welch emphasizes the importance, the necessity of giving employees proper feedback on how they're doing. People aren't being told what what they're doing well and how they can improve. The evaluation processes aren't frequent enough. Uh, we get into this, I'm too kind to evaluate my team. This morning I was in, in San Jose with a, about five, 500 executives from startup companies down there and, and some pretty strong tech companies, Intel and others. And I asked the 400 people, how many people thought they had straightforward relationships in their company with their peers and with their associates? I didn't get four hands, four hands. That's frightening. It's sort of frightening that people are sitting in an organization and don't feel 
that people are laying it on straight and telling it like it's... Welch talks about a better way to improve employees' performance by giving feedback in order to avoid surprises. Why is grading and differentiation okay in the fourth grade through getting an MBA, but it in no way is applicable to adults? It's nuts. Why you would end up having this false kindness where you don't tell people where they stand until you run into trouble. So my view is, take care of the top 20, and this isn't a permanent thing, it changes all the time, but take that top 20, make them feel loved, hug them, give them cash, give them uh, rewards in the soul and the wallet, do everything for them. That middle 70, show them what they need to do to get in the top 20, and that bottom 10, tell them, not that they, why they basically should move on. And don't do it in a guillotine job. Have a conversation that goes over a year or so about what their shortfalls are. Tell them they're in the bottom 10. Don't give them a raise of any kind. Don't give them 2 3%, that fake raise that keeps people hanging around. Uh, <laughs> cut off the, the, the salary issue. And then ask them to leave and say, let's over the next several months work together to get you in the right place. That's so much better than these crazy situations. Companies in, in the valley here, they run into trouble. What do they do? They're going to cut costs. They, they're going to have a layoff. They walk into people and they say, look, Joe, Mary, we got to cut you, uh, cut you back. we got to take you out. Uh, we need to cut costs now. And they say, why us? And they say, well, you weren't that good. And then they say, but we've been here 12 years and nobody ever told us that. That's what happens in this false kindness thing. People get misled. And then if you do it too late in your career, I maintain that not having differentiation is the cruelest form of manager, the cruelest thing. If you have responsibility, if you lead people, they should know where they stand. Couldn't agree more. How do you, how do you develop that talent? And my goodness, if you've got to lay that talent off at the age of 40, oh my, it's over. To finish up, Welch talks about how in order for employees to work towards a common goal, they have to have a solid mission and proper values. Mission and values are the most gobbledygook conversation pieces in companies. I mean, a mission statement ought to be so clear. It ought to exactly know where you're going to go, define it clearly and go after it, not have this mission of uh, goodness and all these other words that get in like mission statements. Make it very clear what you want to be. And then have the values, which I call behaviors. Values are a misused word. Values are behaviors. The behaviors you want to achieve that mission. And then you measure and reward, as I said, in the soul and the wallet, those behaviors. And when people don't exhibit those behaviors, and you want them, and you finally have to part company with people because they didn't exhibit the behaviors and values you wanted, you can't say that they went home to spend more time with personal time with the family. You've got to say, here's why these people didn't make it. They're good people. They're this and that. But they didn't have our values. One of the craziest things you see in, in, in corporate America, is it's run by lawyers in some ways, where, where you end up with integrity by uh, violations. And people say, well, we had to let so-and-so go. Uh, they they, uh, they want to spend more time at home. You got to say, you got to hang them publicly. 
for doing bad stuff. You've got to set the tone of your values and your behavior. And you, if you're doing it right, you can't be afraid to put it out there. And so I think that you set a mission, you set the behaviors, you operate in an open, candid, as you said, takes time, build trust, transparent fashion, and you give every employee voice and dignity, and you've got a foundation that means something. And great advice on leadership. Jack Welch former CEO of General Electric. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and today we have on a young man who's gone through a heck of a lot. Andrew McCaffrey is a senior at Western Reserve Academy in Ohio, and in 2011, he was diagnosed with osteosarcoma, a fairly rare type of bone cancer that mostly affects young people. He's here to talk about that and how he's overcome the odds and overcome his cancer. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Hey, before we get into your diagnosis, Andrew, can you give us some background on your family life, what life was like for you growing up? Tell us a little bit about your life story. Okay. Um, so kind of an interesting childhood, I guess, growing up. was So my dad is um, in the Army, and he's active duty. And so my childhood, I guess, still now, we move around a lot. And so I spent kind of – I've lived in seven different places um, – more different homes and so it was a lot of moving around and so I kind of got used to making new friends and kind of getting used to just new things and new surroundings and as a kid I was a really active kid I mean I played four sports consistently and so I kind of just that's kind of a way that I kind of got used to where I was the next time was getting in with different sports teams and getting into that kind of stuff and so I mean really for my brother and my sister and I um, that's really what life was like and for me especially, I found kind of a sanctuary or a refuge in sports, and that was just really what my life revolved around was the activities and athletics. Yeah, and let's face it, the, the best way to bond with people is to dig in and play football with them or basketball or volleyball, and you'll get to know yeah. people real fast. No, for sure. So let's talk about your diagnosis. How old were you? What were the symptoms leading up to it? Did anybody expect anything like this? And what exactly is this form of cancer? Talk about the cancer, too. Those three questions at you. Okay. Well, so I was diagnosed in 2010 uh, when I was 11 years old. And I, it was really the, the last thing I expected, as it usually is for people. Um, so I was, I mean, like I, like I mentioned, I was an active kid. And, and so I had just started a basketball season. And I was on a much more competitive basketball team than I was used to. And so... I started to realize that I kind of was starting to feel some, like, pain and achiness in my right knee. And so my parents and I kind of attributed it just to, you know, it's a more competitive team. And so I'm just putting a little bit more strain on my knee and that kind of thing. And so we didn't really think too much of it, especially because it was the type of pain where I'd be outside running around with my friends and I'd just kind of poke my head in the door and yell, hey, mom, my knee hurts. And then run right back out. So she really didn't think anything of it because if I was 
clearly not giving it much attention that it couldn't be anything too serious. Um, although the pain lingered for a couple weeks, and it actually, this there was one week where it woke me up twice in the night, and I woke up just in a lot of pain, and I let my mom know. And So my mom has a background. She's a nurse, and so she kind of started to get a little bit worried that this might be something a little bit, like, structurally a little bit more serious. Um, and so I tagged along with her and my sister to go to a doctor's appointment that my sister had scheduled for uh, shin splints that she was dealing with. And so I went in to just our regular sports medicine doctor and talked to him about it. And, I mean, kind of same thing for him. He figured I just had kind of a developing tendonitis in my knee. He decided to take some precautionary x-rays just in case. And later that day, I just I was back at school playing around during our recess time, and I remember our school secretary coming out and telling me that I wasn't allowed to run or jump or anything like that for the rest of the day. But being an 11-year-old kid, I didn't really listen, and so I kept doing what I was doing, only to find out the next day that I had to go in for more scans. Uh, I had to go in for a CAT scan and an MRI at the hospital. And then to confirm, what I didn't realize yet was osteosarcoma, because after my scans, I was walked down to a part of the hospital that I had never been to. And it's kind of, I look back at it now as kind of a funny story. Um, so my, my mom and dad and I were walking through the hospital following a nurse, and we walked past this sign that I distinctly remember it was a part of the hospital I had never been to, and the sign said pediatric hematology and oncology. And it's, it's really clear for me, and my mom burst into tears. And I looked at her and I said, what's wrong? Thinking this is odd that she's crying all of a sudden, and it just, I didn't think anything had happened. And she looked at me and said I had stepped on her foot and used that as an excuse because she didn't want to tell me yet of what she suspected, I guess, after seeing that sign. And so she used the fact that I, she said I had stepped on her foot as an excuse. And then a few minutes later, I was sitting in a doctor's office being told that I had osteosarcoma and I had cancer. And I was just, uh, I thought my life was over, really. I thought everything was ruined. And this uh, disease mostly affects young people because their bones, your bones, are just rapidly growing. Amidst all mm-hmm. of this, what you, you said you were thinking about your future and it was ruined. Was that your immediate thought? Did you think maybe there was a cure? Or were you thinking, my goodness, that's it? And, and what do you mean by that? So do you think you were going to die? Do you think you were going to lose a leg? Did you think what? What did you think? Well, for me, I hadn't really had a direct, um, no direct connection to cancer. I mean, no one in my immediate family had ever been diagnosed. And so really, to me, the word cancer as a disease and just really just as a word had this stigma of like almost immediate death and that there wasn't much to do about it. Um, and so I, I was kind of destroyed and thinking, you know, I'm 11 years old. It's not fair. Why me? Kind of were all the immediate thoughts that came into my head. Um, and, and just, even if there is, like, even if I can come out of this, like, it doesn't matter anyway because I can't play sports. I can't, I won't be able to run again, that kind of thing. Yeah, there goes your physical life, if not your actual life. And either way, what's the point? And I can only imagine, I can't imagine actually what you were going through at that age. And when we come back, we're going to talk more with Andrew McCaffrey, 
his remarkable story right here on Our American Stories. Cancer affects so many of us, young and old. There's not a family that's not affected. How do we triumph over it? How do we overcome it? More with Andrew after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return with Andrew McCaffrey. We were just leaving things off with him finding out that he'd been diagnosed with cancer. Uh, Andrew, tell us what happens next. How do you proceed? What are the next few months and years like for you? Um, well, so the next, I mean, they kind of told us a few things were going to happen fairly immediately. Um, the doctor explained that I was going to have to have a a biopsy where they would just make a small incision on my knee and take a small sample of what they believe to be the tumor just to confirm that it was in fact osteosarcoma. And then um, assuming that it is, we would proceed with starting chemotherapy and then a few months down the road have to make a decision on what kind of surgery I was looking at to remove the tumor as a whole um, and a good portion of my femur as well. And so you, in the end, you move into high school with a prosthetic leg. What was that mm-hmm. like, having to, uh, you know, go through this and realize that in the end you were going to have to, you know, be not your full self? What was your quest like to return to the things that you once loved and did? Um, well, it was, it was an interesting kind of journey, I guess, because when I actually chose to have the amputation because it, it was a way for me to get back into sports because my initial surgery that I had was a limb salvage surgery where I was able to keep my leg but I was severely limited activity wise and so going into my eighth grade year I had broken the titanium rod that was running through my femur and to me it was really it, it might sound funny but to me it was the best thing that ever happened to me because by breaking that rod, it gave me a chance to kind of start over and, and have the amputation that I chose to have, which is a modified amputation called rotation plasty, where they actually remove the most of your knee and some of your femur, and they take your foot and ankle and rotate it 180 degrees and, rot- and attach it back onto your upper leg so that my ankle functions as my knee. Amazing. Um, so Ama- it's, it's a radical kind of not very common surgery, but I... I had it in eighth grade and jumped right back into physical therapy, trying to get back into sports. And that's been my big goal ever since. And, um, I mean, it was, it was a long kind of tough road and I'm still, I'm not off that road at all. Um, I'm still very on it. I just trying to work to get to where I want to be, um, back to. And you've relapsed, it relapsed a second time in 2013, and then relapsed a third time in your sophomore year. Talk about those two relapses and what that was like. This was not a simple, this was not a simple road, and as you pointed out, you're still on it. Right. So I relapsed my seventh grade year, 
and then again my freshman and sophomore year and I mean those are the last things that you want to hear as a, I mean as a cancer patient you finish treatment and you think everything's done and you think you can just move on but it's really it's I mean it's a hard thing to to get over um and those relapses are crushing really I mean because like I said I thought I was getting back to normal I was starting to make friends I was getting back to just going to school all the time and being that I guess quote normal kid and then I got hit with another diagnosis and it was just it was it was hard but I kind of got into a mindset of you know it's happening and and it wouldn't be me if I couldn't handle it and so it's just something that a mindset can really change and if I felt that I can kind of get through it and beat this cancer that I was going to be okay and I mean it was tough to get to that point and I couldn't have done it I mean without my family and friends because that's really I was lucky and I had a great support system I mean I have two older siblings that were there every step of the way and both of my parents were always with me whether spending the nights in the hospital and because in my opinion cancer it doesn't just affect whoever's diagnosed it affects everyone who's around you very directly as well and I haven't, re- I didn't realize it until I was a little bit older and looking back at it, but my brother and sister were affected almost as much as me. And while they weren't going through treatment or having surgeries, they were having to do stuff on their own because my parents would be with me and they were having to kind of learn to become very responsible very quickly, probably much earlier than most kids have to. And so it was hard on them. And just, I know for them to see their little brother going through so much was, was definitely tough, but if it wasn't for them, I don't think I would have been able to make it through what I did and what I've been doing. Well, it's a beautiful thing that you had siblings like that and a family that was able to pull together, Andrew. Uh, you know, you, you chose, after the third relapse, to not go back on chemo because of how terrible it made you feel. Talk about that decision, Andrew. Well, that is part of the decision for sure. I mean, it's hard to choose to go back on something that's just that bad and the side effects and the, just how it is, is is terrible and I only have bad um, memories of it. And so really deciding to go back was, was a decision that my parents and I both made because one, there's there's not much research on osteosarcoma about what to do after a third relapse. And so there really is no set plan. It's kind of up to your discretion and your doctor's discretion. And after talking to my doctor and talking with my parents and the rest of my family, we decided it would be okay to just have the surgery and not go back on treatment. Well, it takes a lot of guts. In the end, you were making some of these calls, I think, Andrew, all by yourself in the end. I mean, you had family around you, but in the end, mm-hmm. you're old enough to say, this is what I want, this is how I want to live. And talk about the cancer as as a defining event. There's a quote here from you that said the following, the cancer doesn't define who I am, but it helped me discover who I am. Talk about that. Um, yeah, so it's, I don't think I would be who I am today or or where I am today in my life if I hadn't been diagnosed. And really what I mean by that is just because of cancer and because of this, I guess, I mean, circumstance that I was put in, I was able to kind of put a lot of things into perspective and realize that a lot of things I'd taken for granted shouldn't be taken for granted. And so because of my diagnosis, I I realized a lot of different things, whether it's that, putting things into perspective, or that there are some things that 
seem insurmountable that really aren't. And so I'm able to kind of build from this, I guess, courage and strength that I've gained from being a cancer survivor now and a kid who, who beat cancer four times um, that, like, it's nothing's really going to stop me and that I just have to keep pushing forward. Well, I see the pictures, and I've seen pictures of you on a surfboard. I've seen you in a picture, mm-hmm. like, running. I've seen picture of you in, in, a, in, a, in a football uniform with a helmet and pads. Yeah. Uh, so talk about your sporting life, because this is what it was all about. Heck, you were willing right. to get an amputation so you could play sports. That's a remarkable thing. Talk about sports mm-hmm. and, and how you're doing with that. Well, so recently I've really been able to kind of get back into what I wanted to do. Um, so I'm a, I'm a senior now, and but last year, my junior year, I would say was when I really got back to the point where I was able to play sports, not back to where I wanted to be, but back to a, a level that I was, I was at enough of a high level that I could start playing again. And so I returned to wrestling actually my freshman year. So I've been wrestling for the past four years. And then I was actually the captain of my wrestling team this year at school. And so that was a great experience. And I returned to the football field um, last year, my junior year, and played last year as well as this year. And then in addition to football and wrestling, I've taken up snowboarding. I love to snowboard. Um, I played a little bit of sled hockey, which is an adaptive hockey. Um, And I'm looking more now into hopefully doing different kind of starting to train and maybe even look forward to different like serious competitions that I could get myself into just because that's, it's what I have a passion for. And, and now that I'm have the opportunity to play sports again and compete like that, I feel like it's something that I, I shouldn't waste. Um, and I really need to take advantage of while I can. Well, last but not least, uh, Andrew, just about a minute here. Uh, some people outside of your family who supported you through all this and have you been able to help others talk about that? Well, so I was really I helped I was helped by a few other kids that I had met that had been diagnosed with this before me and had gone through some similar things and they were able to help me a lot by answering questions and that kind of thing. And so now I I love to help other kids that are in this situation, be it a terrible situation. Um I I like to kind of be there so that if they have questions, they can ask someone who went through it because I think who better to ask than someone who kind of has a a deep understanding of what they're going through. And so I'm involved in a program. Um, it's called the make it better agency. And so it's a, it's a foundation organization for where I serve as a mentor for other kids with osteosarcoma. Um, and I communicate with them and answer their questions. And even if it's just meeting with someone who my orthopedic surgeon knows in the hospital who has this, cancer or was going thinking about a surgery that I had it's just I like being able to help them as many people helped me well and that's ultimately I kind of know now what I want to do in the future which is actually go into orthopedic oncology that's so fantastic that is fantastic Andrew other people's stories help you through your story your story you're now paying it forward and you're helping others with your experience this is Lee Habib we've been talking to Andrew McCaffrey a boy and a young man who lost a leg to cancer, but is just living and powering himself through it. This is Our American Stories. Thanks so much for joining us, Andrew. Thank you. You bet.
And now it's time for our weekly Marriage on the Mind segment with our marriage coach, Deb Walniak, the executive director of Great Marriages for Sheboygan County in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, a group whose innovative couple-to-couple mentoring program has an 87% success rate in saving struggling marriages compared to 28% with traditional counselors. Every week, Deb joins us for storytelling about marriage And today we're going to start with a story about vacations. And when we think about vacations, we often think of family vacations or guy trips or girl trips. But we're about to bring you a story about a different and rather unique kind of vacation. It's brought to us by the terrific website IBelieveInLove.com and by their contributor Carrie Schmidt, a wife and a mom of two daughters in Cincinnati, Ohio. Here's Carrie. One evening, when I must have looked pretty haggard, my husband said some of the most loving words I've ever heard. What if I take a week of vacation from work and you go stay with your parents so you can have a break, he asked. Really? You think that could work? I responded as I racked my brain trying to decide for myself. I think you should go on vacation. You haven't had a break for over three years. There's always going to be a reason not to do it. If we can possibly pull it off, we should try, he encouraged. That was all the prompting I needed. For the next two months, I planned and daydreamed about how wonderful it would be to decide for myself what I wanted to do with my days. After pouring over the calendar, we settled on a five-day break just before Christmas. How did the break go? Well, as you may have suspected, we got some great stories out of it. The first text I received from my husband, who rarely cooks, read, Adventures with Daddy Day 1. Set off the smoke detector trying to cook eggs. Others included, Do we have a lemon zester? What do you use to grease a pan? The kitchen is starting to smell a little funky. When do the dishwashing fairies normally come? We're really low on milk. Where is the best place to get more? There were also multiple pictures of the baby falling asleep in various parts of our house because Daddy hadn't recognized she was tired and needed a nap. However, my favorite story is from day four, when he answered the phone with a grumpy, hello. What's wrong? I asked. I'm locked in the bathroom trying to get a moment of peace, and then the phone rings. I erupted in laughter. I can't make this up. He then proceeded to direct our three-year-old through her chore list and identify that the 13-month-old was playing in the dog's water bowl and convinced her to stop all through the locked door. Impressive and hilarious. My side of the break was very relaxing. I went to bed when I was tired, woke up when I was ready, watched a movie, ran some errands, read and did some sewing that was on my list. The biggest change was getting to operate on my own timeline, and it was wonderful. My husband also gave me a beautiful card filled with words of appreciation and a spa treatment for me. I felt so loved and so encouraged. So why did he decide to take on two little girls and a dog by himself? Because he recognized that I needed a break. He saw me. He got it. The 24-7 job was wearing me out, and I needed some time to refresh. He chose to selflessly contribute to the solution. When we see someone in need, 
we can respond in one of two ways. We can ignore the problem and hope it goes away, or we can contribute to the solution. Which is more loving? That's kind of obvious, but sometimes it's difficult to choose to love those who are closest to us. We can take them for granted instead of setting our own desires aside. I'm sure he would have rather completed some of the projects on his list with that time off work, but he selflessly chose to put my needs ahead of his wants. It will be interesting to see how these five days in my shoes changes the dynamics of our family going forward. I know I will be excited for another mommy vacation if the opportunity is ever presented again. In the meantime, this has also helped me reflect more on my husband's wants and needs and form a plan of action to try to help him achieve this. You're only as strong as your weakest link. Who is your family's weakest link and how can you help them get stronger? Wow, and then we're going to be bringing in Deb in a second, but we're all looking at each other going, oh, man, I hate this guy. He's making us look bad. But I think, uh, well, you're laughing, Deb, because you know, and I think men listening to this right now are going, oh, I know that's the right thing to do. I know that's the decent thing to do, and I haven't done it. So, Deb Wolniak, you join us now. What do you think of this? This is just, frankly, it's just it's so good, and it's so so, so decent, and... How many guys do you know that would do something like this? And what what does a guy learn from this, Deb? Well, this is this is good. I appreciate your heartfelt, you know, concern like reflecting on your life. But let's just flip it around. You might have women listening to this that go, "I wish my husband could hear this story because this is what I need." And how do I bring this up in a sensitive way? You know, because I don't want to put him on the spot, and yep. I'd like this to be a gift and not a demand. Yep. <laughs> and so I, I'm going to throw this out to the women that are in that boat as well. Um, if you are that person, I want you. Um, to do this for your husband, even though you feel you might need it. I know it sounds like a stretch, but believe me, it will come back around. Um, There might be something that he's been working really hard at as well, and he's kind of at the end of his rope. Give him the opportunity, even if it's a day, you know, it doesn't have to be a week, and let him do something special. Maybe give him a gift card to go to a sports store or um, give him time to just go fish. He may have the equipment. He just needs to get his worms and just go out and just sit in a boat and be with his thoughts. But as you do that, you will trigger that um, example. And he, if he's smart, will connect the dots and say, hey, I want to do the same for you. Now, for those husbands who haven't done it yet, don't feel guilty. Now is your opportunity. I think you should take advantage of it. If it's not the mommy vacation what does fit into your schedule that may let her go with a friend to get a cup of coffee and come back? Some folks can do a micro vacation that might be just, you know, 45 minutes or an hour of while maybe some young moms need to come back and breastfeed. So just getting that time alone is extremely helpful. And you know what's fun about couples is there's a lot of times this resiliency. You heard this lady, three years and she hasn't had a break? Oh, my gosh. So she had a week, she came back refreshed, but you also heard how she's not going not to just sit for three years. She's going to proactively schedule time with her husband so that he has that opportunity and vice versa. I think you need to plan that into your family structure in order to create healthy space for your heart and mind to rest so you can be the best parent and the best spouse or significant other. So that's actually really encouraging. I like the story. Oh, I love the story, Deb. When we come back, we're going to be talking a little about foster care because it's National Foster Care Month. 
And so what happens in a family, in a marriage, when you make this decision to go down the foster care route? Because it's a big one. And it's like the adoption route itself. And this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you can go to ouramericannetwork.org to capture all of our Marriage on the Mind segments. Go to the Topics button, take a look. All of our This Days in History, right down the line. There have got to be about 85 of them now. And our Marriage on the Mind segments run the gamut, from drugs to pain to long-term marriages to, well, just about everything we've covered. And we're going to continue to do so with Deb Wolniak right after these messages. Our Marriage on the Mind segment continues. And now we continue with our Marriage on the Mind segment, and we love to hit topics that cover just about every aspect and dimension of a marriage. By the way, I was talking to a friend the other day who had just, they had just lost a child and uh, to, a, to a, a really tragic uh, and a, a car accident. And, and the marriage, I don't know how strong it is, actually. And we were talking about the movie Ordinary People. And I think they're heading down a bad course, Deb, um, because as you know, and we've talked about often, tragedy can often show fissures in a marriage. And if you remember that movie with Donald Sutherland and Mary Tyler Moore, they had lost their son in a boating accident. And the movie was all about that marriage and how they handled it. And if you remember, the marriage didn't make it. Um, uh, it actually tore them apart. And uh, just, you know, just a second before we dig into the the adoption, because I think often this can happen with adoption, too. You think it's an easy road. The child comes in, the new child, and there's an existing family. And it's not always an easy road in adoption. And it's not always an easy road losing that child either. Just talk about stress as it relates to marriage, Deb, because in the end, these are stress events in the end. Mm-hmm. So one of the stressors you mentioned were the shock kind of stressors that are those surprises that no one is expecting that are tragedies. And then the other one is a more of a planned stressor where you do your best you can as a parent to take calculated, a meaningful relationship building risks, knowing that no child is perfect and no marriage is perfect. But in, in both cases, there are levels of stress that can affect a marriage. Uh, one thing in, in those cases that has a common thread is I've always, always said build a team of people around you that are going to support you through the process. If it's on the grieving side, please get involved with the Grief Share program or community-based uh, programs that are going to help you transition through the waves of grief and loss. And you need to honestly process those and go through that in order to continue 
um, to build your relationship because it does kind of create that explosion hole in your heart and you have to try to rediscover love again. In the other case, you're building up the opportunity of growth of new love, almost like a tree um, continues to sprout a branch. You know, you want to graft that branch into your family tree, and there's some beautiful opportunities there, even though sometimes it can be hard. Yep, indeed. So let me let me do this. We're going to be talking about a group called Faith Bridge, and it's a Christian fostering foster care agency that approaches churches about how many children need foster care homes in their local area. And they've had some pretty remarkable success, Deb. And one of the reasons why is they have a sort of unique community of care model where folks surround the foster family with tutoring help, babysitting, mentoring. Like you said there, the team. It's a team approach, and and you need to do these things. Nationally, by the way, almost 50% of the foster families in this country drop out every year because they feel overwhelmed. And today we meet Ryan and Stephanie Martin, who became a foster family through FaithBridge and their story. And like so many of these stories, was driven by the heart of the mother. My wife had had a, it had been a passion of hers for a number of years, and she had actually been praying for me um, to, to just consider doing something. And we were introduced to FaithBridge through some friends, attended an orientation, and I was, I was actually wrecked by the message. And so we collectively, although my wife... Before I was ready, uh, she was ready long before me, and she she prepared me through her prayer. And uh, we we at that point decided that this was something that we needed to do collectively as a family. Well, I've always had a heart for children who do not have a home. Um, really, from since I was a teenager, I really feel like God just laid that on my heart. Um, but through the years, we had our biological children, and our home was full, or so we thought. But that just never left. That feeling never left that God gave me. And um, so I did. I started mentioning it to Ryan and he said, we're good. We're full. Um, But I really just spent some time praying for that because I I, I told the Lord, I either, I have this tug on my heart and I either, um, you've either got to change the tug or you've got to help my husband join me in that. And so over time, that's what he did. And these were clearly people of faith, but my goodness, secular folks listening, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've bumped into this in my life, Deb. One person wants a small family, one wants a big family. One <laughs> wants to adopt kids, and one doesn't. So let's just say Stephanie continued to want to have these adopted kids in her home, and Ryan didn't. How do we negotiate these things, Deb, and how do we walk through these, these things? And this is what I meant about how sometimes adoption can create a stress by the way, Ryan might not have known that Stephanie wanted to adopt. Stephanie might not have even known she had wanted to adopt when they first married. These things just come to folks. How, how does this create stress in the marriage? How do they negotiate this if, for instance, the couples aren't on the same page on something this big? Yeah, I'll tell you what, um, this form of bringing children into a family, whether they're of your own or foster care or adoption, it is a big life-changing decision. It is a lifetime commitment, except for those that are in foster care to help with transitional living for a child that might be in transition and going back to either their birth parent or um, a new family. But um, one of the things that will help you navigate is to not only continue to research and make yourself the best, most aware potential parent or new parent, um, if that's the case, but in a lot of cases, as you check out agencies, they provide wonderful 
social workers or experts, counselors, etc., who uh, their job is to educate you and help qualify you um, to make sure you're ready for that transition, um, offer some continued classes, and maybe even some counseling just to make sure that you both are, are ready and on the same page. With things like finances, children, etc., even getting married, I just want to encourage everybody to try to be on that same page. You're not going to succeed if you have a foundation in your family that's split. It's almost like building a house on an uneven foundation. Every decision after that is just going to be very difficult. So for those of, of faith, I strongly encourage you to pray. This is something that, you know, you need to discern God's heart, and um, he'll know your heart. He'll know your desire. And I'm just going to encourage you guys to come together, who's ever listening to this, come together in prayer, seek wise counsel, really study the benefits and the challenges of the decision you're making. Also, if you have kids currently in the house, um, talk to that expert about birth order and ages. Talk about your family's environment. Where will that child or children stay within the home? Do they have their own space that they'll feel invited into that they can, you know, kind of work on, you know, things when they need to be quiet themselves? Or is it more of a common area? Are they sharing a room with a brother or sister that um, is currently in the family? So, you know, there's a lot of questions there and they do need to be answered well. Um, the, the neat thing is, as you come down that road and together you decide this is a good solution for our family, you're going to be amazed at how wonderful it is to have the opportunity to pour into that child's life, especially for foster parents, because this child has probably gone through a trauma that they didn't expect, didn't want, and yet somebody's taking the time to reach out to them. And this could be a critical juncture for someone who is looking at the world like, I don't know what to expect anymore, I'm scared. And you could be that, you fill in the gap on not only loving that child, but in some cases even adopting that child. And what a huge compliment to that child, that you would love them um, in such a way that you gave them the space to not only go through this process, but to feel love again and attach to a family. So that's a big deal. There is no doubt it's a big deal. And Ryan and Stephanie, it sounds like, are on the same page. And you were saying over and over again that if the couple's not on the same page on these big decisions, trouble lurks, problems lurk. So foster care, uh, being foster parents, being adoptive parents, um, these are big, big decisions together. And Deb, uh, just quickly, you know, this is a, this touches you personally, this space. Uh, talk about that and why. Yeah, so um, my husband and I, Bob, adopted two children from Russia, ages two and four. And believe it or not, they're now 15 and 17. So we've had quite a few years and seasons with them. But even approaching that first moment when we said, hey, I think we want to adopt, once we made that decision, we were on par. But literally, it took us 10 years between the amount of money we had to save to finding the right program and making sure that we were prepared and waiting for those children. Once we finished, we had another four years to wait for those children. That's a long time. And um, that was interesting because that was a time when Russia was really open. Um, What is also important to remember is as you adopt those children, know their cultural um, background and maybe the trauma they've gone through because as you go through this child and grow with them, each adoptive child, and I can even say this for myself, I'm a domestic adopted child only after a week 
of my life. I was adopted into a wonderful family. And, you know, we all go through learning stages, even around age eight. Who am I? Am I loved? And am I accepted? What happened to my birth family? And does my my family now really love me? What does that mean? Um, don't be afraid of those questions from your child. That's a normal process of learning and understanding self. And this is really, really important as they grow. And know that there are going to be points where things can cycle back around or reoccur. There might be cognitive delays. That's really amazing. And I'm going to tell you, really hang in there with your teachers and your schools as you work through these things. Because again, it's that team environment telling that child, you know what? I know sometimes it's hard, but we're going to get through this together. You bet. As always, great advice from Deb Wolniak, our marriage coach, our weekly Marriage on the Mind segment. And we're talking about foster care. We love talking about adoption. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. 